Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, June 24th. We are in the full throes of the grass season at this point. Obviously, when Roger Federer wins a title on grass, you know it's that time of the year. You know we're amping up for Wimbledon, qualifying, getting underway this week. Uh, Obviously, we've got two more warm-up events on the grass, one in Turkey, another in England on the ATP side. On the WTA side, two more warm-up events as well. So just so much going on in the world of tennis. Obviously, such a fun sport to follow because there is so much action day by day. Joining us today to break down all of the tennis from this weekend, well, you know, obviously we've got Feliciano Lopez taking the doubles, ti- uh, double titles in Queens, Ashley Barty propelling herself world t- to world number one, the only person who keeps up in terms of content churning with all of these storylines going on. He is a contributor to tennis with an accent, obviously, you know his work there, one of the hardest workers in the business, you will always see his articles on tennis Twitter. He is the author of the book, Novak Djokovic making the rough places plain and a returning member to our mini break podcast Matt Zemek welcome back to the show thanks for having me back Alex it's very generous of you and I appreciate it oh I had so much fun the first time I'm saying this lovingly so don't you know don't think this is passive aggressive but I have never met anyone who can out tennis talk me and I feel like you achieved that in pod one so I take pod two as a challenge uh thank you <laughs> it really was a compliment. That's what I'm saying. There's no one in the business day in, day out, three stories on tennisaccent.com. I don't know how you do it. Well, if you if you just, you know, if you decide to cover any sport, you you know, once you make that decision as I had to, um, you know, I was just kind of messing around on Patreon, which, you know, I didn't have like an outside accountability system or mechanism that's one thing but when you decide to join a website where you know you have a business partner Sakib Ali and that business partner does high quality podcasts on par with yours uh then you know that when you have a business partner and then you have an audience and you do fundraising online as we did with you know a the GoFundMe, we rattle the tin cup as, you know, basically journalists and journalistic outlets have to do these days when you're small scale and independent. Once you make all those kinds of commitments in terms of funding and business partnership and the like, then you have to put out the content and, and uh, time really doesn't stop. And that means, you know, out here on the West Coast, getting up at 430 in the morning on a, on a June Sunday to watch Roger Federer um, play in a, in a, ATP 500 uh, final on an onion field. Uh, so, um, you know, it's just, it's part of the deal. If you make a commitment, you got to see it all the way through. So uh, I appreciate the words. And, you know, we at Tennis with an Accent, we do try and provide just straight, no frills tennis coverage. I mean, I do try to spice up my tweets on tennis Twitter. Twitter's meant to be fun. But, you know, in terms of the grind, you know, you have to enter into that and you have to take it very, very seriously if you decide to make a, a large-scale commitment. And so right off the bat, I want to let uh, give you a chance because, again, I'm so thankful you're willing to come on the pod. How can, again, we mentioned tennisaccent.com. We talked about tennis Twitter. But how can our listeners, if they want to support your effort, find your work? Yeah, so um, our our podcast really is was the origination point. That was like Saqib Ali's first uh established brand and identity for tennis with an accent, the site that he founded, he then invited me to come along and handle 
the written half at tennisaccent.com. But Sockib's podcast, he interviewed Darren Cahill in May. It's the best thing he's ever done. It's really our website's proudest moment. Um, so, you know, if you haven't listened to that yet, that's the pinned tweet on my Twitter page. So you can find that. And and we're at uh, our the Sockib's podcast, which I appear on uh, in a, at least one segment of the podcast. Um, it's, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on uh, Stitcher. We're on uh, Red Circle, which is the San Francisco-based um, podcast production company that we've recently um, joined. And we're also at a site called Radio Public. And we're trying to work on getting Google Podcasts and Spotify links. Those aren't ready yet. But basically, you know, for, our, for listeners of the Mini Break Pod um, at Cracked Rackets, um, the, the way you can help us without giving us a single cent, we don't want to keep rattling the tin cup all the time. Um, the way you can help us is simply to subscribe, rate, and review. You know, if you have an iPhone, subscribe at Apple. And if you have an Android, subscribe at Stitcher. And just, you know, you know this as well as I do, Alex, being in the podcast business. Those subscriptions and those ratings and reviews, they help your placement. They help your visibility on the web and, and, and search engine optimization. And that, it means a big deal. And that's how listeners to podcasts can contribute without donating a single cent. Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, we appreciate the work you do, or at least speaking for myself, I do so much. I'm sure the entire tennis Twitter community does. So please uh, go like, rate, subscribe, review Tennis with an Accent. Again, uh, you heard where the podcast can be found. You know where you can find all the links. That being said, rattling the tin cup, I feel like there was a ton of that on the t- in the tennis world this weekend. So many great things to uh, talk about. You ready to rock and roll? Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, then the place I want to start, I think this has to be the starting point of our conversation. Whenever another player reaches the number one uh, singles ranking in the world for the first time in their career, that is the topic that wins the weekend. And obviously the player I am talking about, French Open champion Ashley Barty, a winner this weekend, I believe at the um, Nature Valley Classic Tournament. She wins in the final 6-3-7-5 over number eight, uh, over the number eight seed Julia uh, Georgie Uh, now my first thing to you Matt I know you wrote a piece that came out tonight for our listeners who are listening to this in the morning it will still be up at tennisaccent.com we talked about her the last time you were here uh, just how she is it it seems like every skill in her arsenal it's at the very least good right you know the NBA draft was recently and so often they talk about upside versus floor versus you know ceiling all, all of these different things and I feel like what this weekend has established what even this entire you know first half of 2019 has established as as the floor for Ashley Barty because she has so many skills it's just that much higher than any or it's not that much higher but at least at this point it is higher than any other player at the WTA tour level it is and I think the the particular point to make Alex is that her floor is higher across all surfaces that is the most specific insight to make about Barty you know Naomi Osaka's floor is extremely high on hard courts but not on the organic surfaces. And you could use two years ago as an example, Garbina Muguruza's floor on the organic surfaces was very high. It's not so much now, but you know, two years ago it was, and her hardcore floor wasn't very high. But with Barty, she's carrying it across every surface and every set of conditions, every uh, particular circumstance you could imagine, that is the most precise uh, insight to make about her right now. 
How valuable do you think her early career experiences in doubles, winning a doubles Grand Slam, have been to her singles game? And the reason I ask is because even beyond, we talked last time, the serve-forehand combination, her ability to neutralize balls, follow in backhand slices. But to me, what shines the most, and perhaps it's because it's the grass portion of the year, she is just so comfortable moving forward, hitting returns early. And to me, uh, that is just, uh, you know, the symptoms of playing lots of doubles early in your career absolutely i mean i think any 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 instructor or student of tennis you know who has been around the sport for an appreciable length of time knows that playing doubles improves your net play and it forces you to hit very precise targets on on returns And, and and i think also to to learn how to hit the ball squarely without huge swings because doubles you you have to be taking the ball earlier quicker you know your sense of timing just has to be that much sharper you you will have to hit shots in a rapid gunfire rat-a-tat-tat fashion much more often uh, than you will be asked to do in singles so all of those things help the hand-eye coordination the instincts the reflexes and here's the other thing playing doubles you know shapes angles on a court differently than singles so you are able to imagine different possibilities. And, you know, so Roger Federer did not play a lot of doubles in his early 20s. Or at least I, I'm not aware of him having like an extended foray uh, in doubles at that point in his career, in his early 20s. Um, you know, so Barty has that experience. And so Barty w- was able to imagine all sorts of possibilities with her game. And, you know, I reference Federer because, you know, really Barty is like Federer in that she had all the shots in her arsenal and it was just a matter of learning how to line them up and, and put those different shots together. You know, the challenge of playing Federer is precisely that he gives you a different ball on almost every shot, you know, spin, uh, slice, drive, He's always mixing things up, and, and so much of that is, is found in Barty's game. So Barty unlocked you know, the secret, much as Federer did, but she did so all, while also having the doubles component and the net play and moving forward um, relentlessly you know, when she senses an opportunity. So it just speaks to how mature and complete a game that she has right now. This week on Tennis Accent, you wrote an article called Culture First, and it was in reference to the Medvedev-Simone match, but I feel like what you just said kind of applies, or the lessons there were similar from what you talked about in the article, the willingness to move forward, the, the idea of being taught that from an early age that, and I believe the line you used, which was my favorite line of the piece, and something my coaches have also echoed throughout the years, and I'm not at that level, but it's I still think it, it's valid, is you're going to get past, right? That's not not something you can be afraid of. And for Ashley Barty, you can tell she's not afraid in the big moments when the pressure's on, when she's facing break points. She's knowing, you know, if I get my forehand or the ball I'm looking for, I have to follow that in. I have to be confident, play my game. And, you know, yeah, we, you mentioned there, it's also a matter of patience. It's knowing when to uh, pick your spots. But you're, if you're not confident moving forward, if you don't have those lessons instilled in you early on, then you're never going to pick the right spot. And I think something, and it translates, uh, you know, you see 
guys who aren't as natural coming forward but are plenty skilled like an Alex Zverev, like a Borna Chorich who are still learning when to make those choices to move forward. They don't have that sort of um, natural, or not maybe not natural, but that sort of that developed instinct that I think Ashley Barty does at this point of her career, and that is why she has looked uh, so good to this point. Now, last point on this, and then we can move on from the Barty match, but you look at, uh, and you know, you take it with a grain of salt, but you look at Bavada right now, the gambling website, and you look at the Wimbledon odds, Ashley Barty, Serena Williams right now, t- uh, sorry, Serena Williams plus 500, she's the favorite, Ashley Barty right behind her plus 550. I think she enters, given her form, given what we've seen from everyone else in 2019, she's the favorite going into Wimbledon. And I mean, that's not a hot take to say about the number one player in the world, but she has earned that status. I think without question. I mean, you know, Serena is Serena, and, and that, that speaks for itself, but Barty ought to be the favorite. Now, you know, when we get uh, when we get the draw later this week, that could change, but Barty, again, because she's been good in so many different circumstances on so many different surfaces i think she deserves to be the favorite i appreciate you mentioning that um culture first article on simone medvedev i just want to magnify a point from that since you referenced it for for your listeners that you know i i I would not expect Gilles simone uh, at age 34 to reconstruct redesign the way he plays tennis but danil medvedev at 23 he is still at a point where, you know, he has a future ahead of him. And if, you know, if he wants to just, you know, knock antlers in an open field, just do that macho male testosterone thing where he just stands right behind the baseline and tries to outslug Novak freaking Djokovic as he tried to do in Australia, you know, hey, if he wants to, it's a free country. But is that a sustainable way uh, to, to have a career? Is that your best, most likely pathway to success, and 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 this is the the segue to Barty is not just in the fact that Barty's willing to play a complete game and shorten points, but it's also the specific point about net play that not only do you have to be willing to get past, but the other thing is if you lose net points in the first or second set of a five set match, so obviously this is a men's tennis context, you know if you play points. Only with the the mindset that well, if you don't win the point, it's a total failure. That is a, a representation of impoverished thinking. A lot, you know, the elite players are willing to play points in a certain style, and they're willing to lose those points in sets one and two, so that if we get into set four, set five, they will either take away the opponent's legs or they will have a tactical advantage or they will have planted a seed in the opponent's mind that, you know, they're going to be able to do something. I think of, uh, you know, like the best example here is Rafael Nadal on clay that he would use his first serve points. And this was really more last year than this year, but you you see it often with a Nadal clay match uh, at uh, the, the Roland Garros. He will not try to serve huge, on his first serve, he uses his first serve points at the French Open basically to start a, a long rally on his terms. He'll just spin in a, a you know a moderately hard uh, but not overly ambitious first serve, and he will rope you into a long point on his serve. And he might lose the point partly because he didn't go for too much on his first serve, but he's willing to play that point 
because even if you win that point in the first or second set, if you if, if we get into a fourth set, you you might be worn down, and he will be still be playing the match on his terms. So playing points, knowing that you might lose them, and being content with that. That is a tactical long-term view of tennis that I don't think enough players really appreciate. And that's, that's something that's also part of Ashley Barty's story. Yeah, it's what makes watching her play uh, so much uh, so enjoyable. It's because you can see uh, she's so confident out there right now, and deservedly so. You look at the race uh, right now in the WTA standings, most points accumulated to this point. I mean, she's got over an 1,000-point lead over second place Petra Kvitova. She has position, you know, she's about 1,400 points away from getting what she needs to reach uh, the WTA championship, solidify her spot, and that she's there before Wimbledon has even started. It's a testament to how great her season has been. Uh, Yeah, I mean, she's an incredible player. I do want to talk about our other WTA event in Mallorca as well, but you said something very early there that I just, I can't let slide because I feel like going into Wimbledon and uh, on our recent Great Shot podcast when we did the State of American Tennis with Jonathan Kelly, this was something we brought up as well. Uh, Serena Williams, the favorite. And I'm saying this with total respect. Her pedigree, what she's able to do when she reaches her top level tennis speaks for itself. No one needs to hear that repeated. But to have her as the favorite at plus 500, I mean, that's why Vegas wins the day, right? Who is betting Serena plus 500 at this point? Uh, Well, people who really, really like and or really, really trust Serena Williams. Um, I I think that in purely in talk of handicapping Wimbledon, and I'm not a gambling guy, but just in terms of, you know, sizing up the field, you know, viewing it through that prism, just explaining why Serena is valued so highly. I think that the main thing is it's not so much the valuation of Serena as much as it is the valuation of the field. You know, consider what's gone on in the past 10 majors. The past 10 majors, no one on the WTA Tour has made more than three major semifinals. You've had 24 different players making semifinals at the past 10 majors. So, you know, the, the, the players who make the semis or better at these major tournaments, they don't return over. They don't return to those semifinals and finals on a continuous basis. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the real, I, I, I mean, I think women's tennis is in a great place right now, precisely because there are like, 20, 25 really good quality players from the second round onward. You know, in the first first rounds, you'll get cupcakes, but really second rounds onward, third round for sure onward at all the tournaments of importance, you get loads of interesting, contentious matchups between players who can legitimately make deep runs to the quarters, semis, or beyond. So really, I think women's tennis is in a healthy place. But if there's one thing that women's tennis does need right now, Alex, and I think most people would agree with me on this, it needs rivalries to gain traction and to turn over from Mm -hmm. one tournament to the next. You know, not all four tournaments a year. That would be a little repetitive maybe. But, you know, you'd like to see Halep and Stevens play again. It was such a treat to see them play the Roland Garros final and the Montreal final last year. And people would say, hey, I can really get used to seeing these two women continue to play big stage matches. It doesn't have to be Halep and Stevens, of course. I'm just making a larger point that any rivalry, any pairing of two prominent 
big name women's tennis players, if they can repeat at least twice at the majors each year and three or four times at the, the premier mandatories or fives, just having that kind of dynamic is the thing that women's tennis can use the most right now. Well, you talk about having a, a loaded bench of players on the WTA side and a potential young rivalry. I think in Mallorca this weekend at the grass tournament, we have a perfect opportunity for one of those young rivalries to blossom in that uh, number seven seed, Sophia Kennan, obviously the young American who has had such a successful year, one of the players who knocked off Serena at a Grand Slam this year in the third round of the French Open. She wins her second title of the year, 6-7, 7-6, 6-4, over number three seed Belinda Bencic, whose success in 2019 we've talked about many times on this podcast. Now, both of these players, you know, younger than me, which always crazy to say, but, you know, under the age of 23, I think they're both around 22, 21. And you look in, uh, yeah, Belinda Bencic, 22. She's number six right now in the WTA race. Sophia Kennan with this win propels herself to number 16 in the race. I mean, Beyond just the level of tennis in this match, uh, the first takeaway I want from Sophia Kennan is look at the way her uh, game has translated so well across surfaces. She gets a title on clay. She gets now a title on grass. Matt, what what do you think of the young American success thus far? What would you attribute uh, to that success? Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's striking that you you will hear athletes, young athletes, I should clarify, from time to time say how much they admire a given iconic athlete, it, either in their field or perhaps not in their own sport, maybe in another sport. It's one thing to say you admire someone. It's another thing to actually follow that person's path and that example. So Sophia Kennan really is following the pathway of the person in tennis that she prominently admires, and that being Maria Sharapova. She, I mean, Sophia Kennan at 20 competes – the way a, a seasoned veteran competes. She's a player who makes you feel her presence on the other side of the net. You know, Benchich was serving for that match today, uh, serving for that match on Sunday, I should clarify, at 5-4 in the second set, and she d- double-faulted three times. Now, obviously, that's a, 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 an unusually uh, severe sign of nerves from Benchich, but it has to be said that a player probably doesn't double fault three times just on her own. I mean, there can be exceptions, but for the most part, you probably aren't double faulting three times when serving for the match. If, if you know that your opponent, you know, has a, a mediocre return or, you know, doesn't really compete all that well, you know, is kind of, you know, will, will show up sometimes and not show up others. Generally, if you're, if you, if you see a player double fall three times in serving for the match, it probably means that the person on the other side of the net has applied a lot of match pressure and has shown that she's going to stick in rallies, that she's not going to give up on games, that, you know, regardless of the score, she's going to play each point in a focused way. Isn't that the identity that Sharapova cultivated? So in Kennan, I see that same fierce unrelenting uncompromising mentality so it's it's really kind of remarkable that this uh, american you know through russian parents and there are there are multiple americans through russian parents amanda anasimova being another example um it's it's really striking to see that sharapovian identity flow through kenan's veins and her bones and marrow as well the way they compete i 
completely see uh, the the similarities you're talking about. But from a tennis perspective and the way she plays, I don't think she has the firepower of a Sharapova. But again, talk about another player who has every shot selection in the book. She's not afraid to throw in drop shots if you leave a ball in the center. She's going to work angles. She's going to change direction on you. And when you're drawing up a game on the grass surface, now, you know, Sophia kind of not the biggest of serves, and we saw her get broken a bunch in this final. But just, like, again, it's speaks to that point uh, you keep making about having every tool in your arsenal. And for a player who's 20 years old to have that many developed skills, uh, it speaks to just, it speaks to the fact that why she's had so much success in 2019. It does. And I have to mention that, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Kenan played Bianca Andrescu in, in uh, Mexico in February, if if I remember correctly. And yeah, uh, and so, you know, who who knew back then that each of those two players would make such a large impression on the WTA tour? Not not eventually, but this quickly. Uh, I don't think any, anyone who watched them on in that match knew that, that what was about to come. I mean, I, I thought obviously, you know, I was very impressed when I saw that match, but I did not see such immediate uh, and, and transcendent performances from them in 2019. I mean, you look at uh, the people in the top 20 right now of the WTA race and how many of them are under the age of, what, 24? I think there's five, six right off the bat. You look at it, you've got uh, Kennan, you've got Vekic, you've got Anissa Mova, Andrescu, Vondrasova, Osaka, obviously Benchich and Barty. And I mean, all those players, 23 or under. It, it's such a phenomenally talented group. And to wrap up this Mallorca talk, I want to look at the bench aspect. You mentioned the fact she had the opportunities to serve for this match. I have always enjoyed Belinda Bencic's game. And, you know, before this season, she had struggled with injuries. But I think it's safe to say six months in, she has found that level she had found uh, before getting injured. I just... I think this is a player who, you know, you never want to compare someone to Serena because that's, or, you know, it's always tough to do that because it's such high shoes to fill, but just the firepower she possesses, it's special. It is special. And, you know, we, we were all waiting for Belinda Bencic to go through a period where, you know, longer than a month or two when she would be in good health because injuries just have dogged her relentlessly for the past two, three years. And so just, you know, Hey, please, Belinda, can you just stay, you know, in one piece for an extended period of time? And for the most part, we're seeing, you know, what she can do. And, you know, the, the thing that's, uh, uh, you know, it's a modest point of concern because she's still young, you know, she's still only 22. I mean, she has been on the scene for several years. Uh, she, uh, well, you know, she beat Serena Williams, you know, that's four years ago in Canada. It's, hard, it's kind of hard to believe that that was that long ago. Um, and she was, she entered in my mind in kind of an indirect way. There was someone won her first uh, WTA title against Benchich in like 2014 or 13. I'm forgetting who. It's it's a it's a prominent player who'd, who'd made news relatively recently you know it might have been Allison Risk when uh, she won uh, in her Togenbosch I think her first title was against uh, 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 Benchich in like 2014 so I mean Benchich she's been around so long and yet she's still only 22 so you know she still has so much to learn and so much of the future ahead of her but one thing to that I'm moderate, moderately concerned about is that how angry Benchich gets 
during matches. And I, and I, I want to be upfront in clarifying that, you know, venting anger is not a sign that you're a troubled tennis player that, you know, lots of players make anger work for them. I mean, John McEnroe being the foremost example, he played really well when he was angry, but with Benchich, the particular point is when the flow of the match begins to go against her, you know, she can get unsettled. And I really didn't notice this. I wasn't paying close enough attention uh, in February and March when she made her rise. But in Madrid, she had a match like that in the latter stages. Uh, and and there have been other occasions, and this Mallorca final was one of them. I mean, she she really gets angry in a way that it doesn't allow her to be at her best. Another example was the uh, Rowan Garros second round match against Laura Sigamund. You know, she was up 4-1 in the third. And as soon as Sigamund began to rally, uh, she benches was up. That 4-1 lead was a double break, not a single break. As soon as Sigmund broke back for 4-2 with Benchett st- still leading, uh, she went into a stormy place. And it was fortunate for her that the match got suspended due to bad light at 4-4. She was able to come back the next day and finish it off because she she was just in a in a place where it's almost as though she it was borderline not caring about how she played points right before that suspension. So you know that that's something that generally comes with time as a young player. So like it's not any kind of crisis, but it is the kind of thing where if you la- allow it to linger for an especially long time and it becomes an ingrained habit and you don't learn how to make the anger work for you in a positive way, it can be a real problem. So that that's really my main observation about Benchich in terms of what she has to improve on heading into Wimbledon and beyond. Yeah, and I do want to say incredible memory on your part. She made that match, uh, the final you were talking about earlier. It was against Allison Risk, uh, the Tianjin Open in China, October 2014. So, well done by you. Um, three pieces a day, and you remember what went on in October of 2014. I could not tell you. That's my sophomore year of college. What happened that October? Nothing of of memory. So, well done by you. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree with you about Benchich. Again, f- with a player that talented and to have the success she's had, it's always a matter of, you know, when, not if, because I think it's kind of been determined at this point that she has the talent to do um, so many great things. But any final thoughts on the women's side from this weekend? Are you ready to move on to the men? Uh, just my final thought is we need to see Barty and Benchich at Wimbledon. Ooh. I mean, I'm all in on that. I'd also take any Petra Kvitova match at Wimbledon. I love what she's able to do, just the way she moves the ball so well. Uh, her lefty forehand obviously being a standout weapon on the surface. I'd watch any combination of those three. Those are the three probably favorites in my mind heading into the event. Well, you know, that those are great combinations. And the reminder about Kvitova is that, you know, and, and there is a... As, as you on the mini, listeners on the Mini Break podcast listen to this pod, either on Monday or Tuesday, um, there is a heat wave in Europe right now. So it might not carry over to week one of Wimbledon the following week. But if it does, that's really bad news for Kvitova. You know, it was in the low 80s in round one against Sasnovich a year ago. We know that when, the, when it's a pounding sun, and you know Wimbledon doesn't yet have night tennis, barring you know the the uh, occasional odd circumstance when it ha- they have to play a night match. 
but you know, in a pounding hot sun, that's that's where Kvitova you know really doesn't do well. Um, so th- you know that that is the big concern for her heading into this tournament. Yeah, I, I I think that's fair, and I always appreciate a good weather update. So yes, be on the lookout for that heat wave. I'll I'll take the heat over the rain, right? Uh, well, you will, but we'll commit about. <laughs> that's true. I mean. I guess you ask Dominic team, would you rather be really sweaty while you're playing Nadal or would you rather be really tired while you're playing Nadal? And it's probably like, well, I'd rather just not play Nadal. Uh, So, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. But okay, with that being said, a guy who rain, sun, 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 you know, whatever the weather, you know if he's playing in Hala, he's making the semifinals of the event. Roger Federer this weekend uh, goes there, wins his third title of the year, drops two sets along the way. But just, you know, the, the, reminds everyone why come grass season doesn't matter his age. He's a favorite come Wimbledon. Uh, the place I want to start with this conversation, uh, you wrote a great article, again, that came out tonight, that, or came out Sunday night. It will be out tomorrow about uh, why there needs to be a Masters 1000s and I do, event. And I do want to talk about that in a moment uh, on the grass. Uh, but just to marvel at what Federer has accomplished in Hala. I mean, we were talking earlier, you know, in 2002, Federer, that was when his last uh, moment, it feels like, of indecisiveness. But still, this is an event come grass season, come this time of year. You know if Federer's playing, he's probably winning it. You, you do, and here's, here is the essential observation to make about Hala and why winning it so often is a much bigger deal than a lot of Federer's critics would suggest. I wrote a piece last week about Naomi Osaka. Actually, I wrote two pieces about Naomi Osaka's struggles on grass. And in one of those pieces, it was really the second part of that two-part series at TennisAccent.com, I wrote about how, you know, grass season today is so fleeting and narrow. Uh, you know, I, in, in 1974, as tennis fans generally know, Three of the four majors were on grass. Uh, Roland Garros was the one exception. So imagine a world in which you have three major tournaments on grass. If you don't succeed in one, you get two more bites of the apple over the course of the season, not counting other lawn tennis events that probably existed on the calendar at that point in time. But today, most players have a grass season which consists of two events, one warm-up, and then Wimbledon. And of course, in the case of Djokovic and Nadal, it's just Wimbledon. There's going to might be a one exhibition match uh, before Wimbledon, but basically it's a one tournament grass season for them. So you do not get a lot of time in modern tennis in, in the 21st century to finally hone your game on grass. You have to go to grass and you have to get it right quickly. And that, and that, and that is something that Naomi Osaka has struggled with you know it's it's kind of like um when you're a, a a shooter in basketball and you know what the opponent is has a really strong defense so it's tough to get your shot and then on the on the few occasions when you do work around that screen and you're open for that jumper you're squeezing the trigger really tightly and you miss you know you're not in a, in a good relaxed rhythm because you know that really good shot opportunities are hard to come by. So when, on the rare occasions when you get a really good wide open look, you're not, you know, relaxed as a shooter and you have an awful game. That's Osaka on grass. And so when you look at Osaka struggling on grass in that kind of way, that enables everyone to then appreciate 
what Federer does, and, and especially this year when he made the Roland Garros semis for the first time in seven years, and he played all that tennis during clay season. It was a very different entrance into grass season compared to the previous two years. He still wins it. You know, it, 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 it's just he, he adjusts, he adapts. And the fact that, you know, Hala has what I referred to earlier as an onion field. There's a, there's a wonderful, uh, wickedly humorous tennis tweet called Henry Breadstick. I, it, 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 that's, it, that's, I think, the Twitter handle not the actual person's name, but I mean, like that's the first point of reference and Henry referred to Hala as an onion field. So that that's where the credit for the term goes, but you know, so on those bad bounces in Hala compared to the sturdy, well-kept uh, grass courts of Queens club, um, you know, Hala is just a very precarious tournament. And for people who, you know, thought that, you know, this, this uh, Hala tournament was going to be a cakewalk I mean, yeah, the second set against Goffin was a cakewalk, and the the uh, Saturday semifinal against Air Bear was a cakewalk. But Federer came very close to losing against both Sanga and Bautista Agut. And in the past, he's had some really cr- close scrapes in the early rounds of Hala. Um, Philip Kohlschreiber led him 5-3 in a third-set tiebreaker in 2015. Federer got out of that jam. Uh, he lost the first set to Joao Souza in 2014. Um, he he was he didn't win last year, but he made the final. Came very close to winning that tournament. He was, I think, Benoit Paire either had match point or was two points away from winning. Federer just dances out of trouble in Hala. He wins by those really small margins. Hala is a small margin tournament. It 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 he, Federer makes it look uncomplicated on the surface, but underneath, if you're really paying attention. There are, there's usually at least one, if not two, moments of really high drama that he has to endure, and this year was no exception. To a point you made in your article about there's often complaints Federer, you know, steam walks through these hollid draws. You look at the quarterfinal rounds. Zverev, Goffin, Kachnov, Berrettini, Herbert, Chorich, RBA, Federer. That is a loaded quarterfinal field. You know, you're not going to find a much better uh, uh, grass tournament 500 level quarterfinal field than that. So I think that knocks that away. And, you know, again, he doesn't control the draw. It's not his fault that he plays Herbert after uh, Chorich had to pull out after going, you know, 7-6-5, 7-7-6 in that round of 16 match. That's just kind of how the draw breaks. But, you know, obviously in guy at the bottom half of the draw, David Goffin advancing to the finals, even though he hasn't been in fantastic form, that he beat an Alex Virov in the quarterfinals, that he beat a Matteo Berrettini, who has been playing as well as any player on tour in that semifinal, speaks to how high of a level uh, this uh, level of tennis there was at this tournament. The other thing you just mentioned that I really want to touch on, I love your comparison of, you know, a shooter coming off of a screen and having that sort of confidence to fire right away. The equivalent of that to me, that the play that Federer, you know, his most decisive play, if he gets a break point, I think he did this both in the Songa match, in the Gofan match, he does it all the time, particularly on the grass. If it's an ad side return, he's just saying, you know what, you can beat me down the tee, but I'm running around this ball, I'm hitting a decisive first forehand, you know, big inside in down the line or big inside out and either following it in or hit playing a swinging forehand with that second ball. And that's just his go-to play. And, 
Nino, you look at his stats from the GoFen match in the final, when you're serving 60% on your first serve, winning 83% of those points, 65% of those second serve points, saving all three break points that he faces, you know, he's serving and volleying at will, he's hitting half volleys just whenever he wants. Yeah, that that's how you win grass tennis matches, and it obviously speaks to why Roger Federer, probably the greatest grass court tennis player of all time. It, it does, and you know, especially on Halla grass as opposed to Queens Club grass, it's really a it's that is a true first strike game, uh, the, a, a true first strike style. You know, you either throw the first punch, or chances are you're going to be on the canvas. So you have to basically get you know, get hold of the point as quickly as possible. And Federer knows that better than anyone else. And it's not just knowing what he has to do, but of course, implementing it. I want to, I want to make one other point about the top 10, you know, Federer's lack of top 10 scalps at Hala and, and the, you know, on the surface, what looks like really weak draws, you know, that there is, there is, there is a point there is, there is validity to mentioning Federer's lack of top 10 wins, but the, the validity is that we need to see Federer play Djokovic and Nadal more often on grass to get, you know, a fuller measure of that. But if we're not talking about Djokovic and Nadal, is a top 10 win really more valuable or more impressive than a non-top 10 win? couple of examples. Is it more impressive to beat Fabio Fanini on grass or Milos Raonic on grass? It's Raonic. Panini's in the top 10, Raonic isn't. Is it more impressive to beat Dominic Thiem on grass or Feliciano Lopez or Marin Cilic on grass? I would say it's either, you know, Lopez or Cilic. Maybe not 2019 Cilic, but certainly 2017 Cilic. So you can say, well, he doesn't have top 10 wins. But, you know, if we're, if we're comparing players on grass, you will, get, you will have many examples of how a non-top 10 player is actually a more impressive win than a top 10 player because the, the top 10 players, the, the, the players 4 to 10 outside the big three, most of them aren't very good on grass. And whereas you have some snipers and some bomb throwers, you know, from 11 to 20 or 21 to 30, or even further down the, the lineup, you know, who, who really are more dangerous on that surface. So that is a part of the context which has to be brought to this discussion. That seems like the perfect place to transition to the conversation about should there be a Masters 1000 event on grass before Wimbledon. I will say last note on this Roger Federer um, title, and I, I want to talk about Berrettini in a sec or in a little bit as well. But can we get him out of the Uniqlo UPS outfit? Like, can the designers at Uniqlo can we take a second and be like? You know, light brown may not be the best color. Like, are we trying to show the contrast between, like, is he playing in dirty clothes? Is he rolling around in, like, the grass? And that's why it's this shade of brown. I just feel like for Roger Federer, we can do better. Well, you know, I, I remarked that at, at Roland Garros, I realized why that uniform was created. That was because he blended in with the background. <laughs> you know, the, the Chatrier seats were kind of like a dusty, hazy yellow. You know, kind of a you know, a, kind of a muddy amber or something like that, and you, then you have the clay court. He just kind of was invisible when I saw him for that first round match against Lorenzo Sanego, and then so I guess the comparison for Hala is that in that onion field around the baseline, you know, all that dirt uh, late in the tournament, that's the uniform again, just kind of blended in. I I am not like a militant or a zealot on tennis uniforms. I really do not talk about them that much. 
my main thing about uniforms in all kinds of sports is that if you win in them, they look really good. You know, <laughs> that, 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 that is really my only concern. But, but in terms of tennis, just for, for listeners, my only thing with, with, with tennis uniforms, I just, you know, think that everyone tries too hard. <laughs> You know, so counterpoint. What, they what, whatever happened to a whatever happened to a brother trucking one color shirt and white shorts? I, I what, what's so hard about that? It's not them. It's Nike. It's Nike, Adidas, Asics, all these people. Like, when Nike, I think it was a few years ago, sent this neon, it was like the neon display at the Australian and French Open. Do you know how good at tennis you have to be to wear clothing like that? Like, you cannot be an average player shanking every fourth forehand and wearing, like, the flower tiger Nike shirt. And look, Nike, if you want, I am the biggest fan of your clothing, been wearing Nike shoes my whole life. If you want to sponsor this podcast, the flower shirt looks beautiful, but I feel like we can do better. I mean, just whatever, you know, like a just a crisp green shirt and white shorts. A crisp like yellow that. shirt and white shorts. What about the from the Australian or the U.S. Open a couple years ago, the Adidas, like, United Nations shirts, where it was, like, white and there was, like, the blue, yellow, and red squares. And it was, like, it was kind of nice. It was plain. It was simple. Yeah. Just, 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 just big, just strong, bold colors. I, I, I just think tennis uniform designers try way too hard. Oh, I completely agree. And then, last thing in terms of clothing, I will never find anything funnier. I will find things as funny, but never anything funnier than the fact that in Federer's box now, in the most 2019 of fashion, we have a coach with a Berea pasta shirt on or a hat on. I'm like, we're really repping pasta in the Federer box now. That's incredible. Well, you know, Feder, Feder, you know, got Tony Godsick and teammate, they're all about the brand, you know, the Labor Cup, Korea, you know, at where whatever brand is important at a given point in time. So, you know, that's that's a concession to our times. And, you know, it's put a lot of extra bucks in Federer's pocket to pay for his four kids education. So that's what that is. What is the most ridiculous sponsor a player, uh, like a player's coach, could be wearing in the box? So I feel like pasta. That's pretty good for tennis. But what if they have like a a generic shampoo? I'd be like, what's going on here? Like that might be a little too far. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, your mention of pasta called to mind Elena Vesnina. I think it was with that olive oil commercial from a few years ago. <laughs> What is it? What is it with Italian cooking uh, ingredients? That's, that's weird how they've got so much of their uh, foot in the door on this. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, maybe if players tailored it to like their look, like if you know Alex Virev, the asparagus jokes that goes on, if that's one of his reps, you know, Tsitsipas does something creative. Does maybe he's just sponsored by Twitter because that's his go-to. Just all of these things. You can be creative. If we're gonna start doing in-coach sponsorships, sign me up because I feel like we can get pretty funny about that. Um, but that was a long tangent of me interrupting again what I thought was a brilliant uh, or. It's just a point that, you know, 
uh, you brought up in the context of Federer without the top 10 wins, it's because you don't see the Federer, or the Federers, you don't see the Nadals, the Djokovic's, obviously he's murdered, uh, injured now, but the Murray's, uh, there's just so few and far between opportunities to play grass tournament events in between the French Open and before Wimbledon. And you brought up the fact that, you know, anytime someone complains about that, you you mentioned you think they're implicitly uh, sort of referring to the fact that there is no Masters event, so we don't get to see all these players line up. Now, this was a topic, you know, we talked about the structural scheduling errors that that sometimes occur in tennis events far too frequently. And I guess the biggest questions that would come up if you started planning around a match, or I guess even before we get into the questions about it, why, Matt, do you think a Masters 1000 event on grass is the answer uh, to a lot of these problems? Well, the main thing is that just on a purely conceptual level is that there, there needs to be more balance among surfaces and flowing from that because hard courts are on the high end of the imbalance, you know, enjoying the advantage in the imbalance, you know, hard courts produce the most strain in what has become an increasingly physical sport. Now, obviously on slick grass, you'll see people slip and uh, get injuries such as Juan Martin Del Potro, but, you know, generally grass is, uh, you know, a softer, more forgiving surface, and we should want a tennis tour in which all the surfaces are more equally representative can i counter on that real quick i'm sorry to cut you off but let me just ask why do you think that is because if i'm going to be honest as a fan and look grass tennis has its place and wimbledon is its you know wimbledon the event and the quality of a grass tennis match are two completely separate topics in my opinion but if you're asking me to rank the quality of tennis in terms of entertainment value uh, from my perspective i would put grass at third i would say you know the points too many errors points are too short it's really hard for guys to get traction and guys and girls to get traction to move you know the diversity of point you're going to see not that great because uh so much it's slice keep the ball low move in change direction you can't really physically work the way i suppose you can on uh clay and hard court so i guess that would be my pushback is why do you think balance across the surfaces would be beneficial to the game the game well, for one thing, I think, I mean, I think that, you know, overall strain on players' knee joints, which is just brutal on hard courts, you know, that would be decreased, that that's one part. But the other thing to consider, and this circles back to Ash Barty, is that if you have more grass events, players will be forced to, to attack the net. And you, so it, it would be a way of, you know, if players aren't going to rethink to change their style, the, the surface might do the rethinking for them. So you could have a revolution, or if not a revolution, that might be too Bernie Sanders uh, a term for this. You know, maybe just a moderate tweak, you know, mo- moderate policy revision. Uh, like you Kamala could just Harris. No. Yeah, exactly. So, no, well, deftly done. Um, so you, you could have just at least a, 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 you know, a pushback or, you know, a slow reversal of, of, of trends in tennis, you know, to, to the point that players get more variety. But, you know, just broadly, let's deal with this for, for a brief second. Imagine a tour with three hardcore Masters 1000s, three red clays, Miami's blue clay. I mean, I know Miami blew its opportunity to do that because it put down hardcourts at uh, Hard Rock Stadium and the new complex surrounding that. But three hardcourts, three red clay, a green clay, 
uh, an indoor, which you have, which you have in Bercy, uh, and then a Grassmasters. You know, you have, you would have substantial balance um, in terms of all surfaces and all conditions. You know, and, the, and you, at, so at the end of each year, you could truly say that you know the players who won the most points and and got to London or or you know in the future years um, tour in for the ATP race that they really were asked to play the bigger tournaments on a full range of services and a full range of conditions, you'd have less fan wars. I mean, that's, that's nice, but the bigger thing is players would be challenged across a larger range of environments and there would not be quite as much hard court centrality, which, which is something I think um, tennis needs given how physical the sport has become. I had never thought – I mean, so from the player's health perspective, excellent point. I think that has always been something is how to make the game, as it becomes more physical, less uh, wear you know, less wear and tear on the players. We see the Delpo knee injuries, just every injury adding up. So many players with a lot of nagging things throughout this season because of how long it is. So I think that's a great point there in terms of limiting the wear and tear. I also love your point about from a developmental status, forcing players – to play, you know, on the grass surface longer. If they want to have success at that portion of the season at all, it would force them to become more aggressive. You talk about guys like, you know, I mean, Stan Wawrinka for the longest time, not the best grass player, but other guys, you know, Christian Guerin, uh, young player, Jaume Munar, uh, players like that. You wonder how beneficial it would be for their development if it's a longer grass season. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess the the follow-up question is always given the compact, and again, this speaks perhaps to the structural error, errors, and if you throw in a Masters 1000 on grass, you change the Miami surface, do all of these things, perhaps there are other big changes that go along simultaneously. But the big question would be, you know, where the f*** do you put a Masters 1000? You have one month already. It's already a rush to get from uh, uh, the clay season to the grass season. Where is it going to go? Do you eliminate event? At what point, if you push back Wimbledon, does that cut into the American hardcore season? Obviously, the U.S. Open never going to give up their status surrounding Labor Day weekend. Where do you see the space for this sort of event, Matt? Yeah, so you know there there are a lot of ways you can do it, and I and I have to preface my remarks by saying that you know what makes sense is not something tennis will necessarily consider because tennis you know it's so sure. poorly governed. I mean it's tennis; everybody knows this. But I think if we're ma- if we're looking for the most reasonable and workable solution, here it is, and that is that Indian Wells in Miami occupy one and a half weeks or really two weeks, you know, the, the, if you include the qualifying and, you know, the, they are, well, at least, at least from the men's point of view, they're masters, 1000s, women's premier mandatories, but they're seven round tournaments. So they're really more than a masters 1000 or more than a premier mandatory. Those are extra length tournaments. I mean, they're not 128 player fields that you have at the majors, but they are seven rounds. So it, you know, if, you could do this one of two ways, but you know, if, if you want to keep Indian Wells and Miami as seven-round tournaments, then I, I have been on record. I wrote about this in March when this came up at TennisAccent.com. You can fish around in our archives. But if you really want to keep them as seven-round tournaments, they should be 1,200 or 1,300-point or tournaments. You should add points, and you should also beef up the point allotments in the early rounds, which is something that I remember Taylor Fritz specifically tweeting about during Indian Wells. But if you're if you don't want 
uh, to keep them as seven round tournaments, you know, you could move them into six and you can make them one week tournaments. And so if you take Indian Wells and Miami as one week tournaments, you lop off one week, you know, cause you would need a week in between, you know, you, so you couldn't, you couldn't start Miami on the Tuesday after Indian Wells ends. That would be a week in between. And I'm in Phoenix. Um, there, there, there was a, uh, for, this was the first year, 2019, for the Phoenix Challenger. And Matteo Berrettini, interestingly enough, won that Challenger. The director of that Phoenix Challenger, uh, John Levine, he, was, he made the third round of the U.S. Open in the early 1980s. I was able to interview him. Um, you know, he said he scheduled that Challenger in Phoenix because it would be en route and en route from Indian Wells to Miami. So tour players who wanted to play some extra matches, get in some golf and some sunshine, they could go to Phoenix after losing early in Indian Wells on their way to Miami. So like that could be in between Indian Wells and Miami. So you, basically, anyway, if you turned Indian Wells and Miami into uh, one-week tournaments instead of where we're currently two, and you just kept the the 1,000 point structure, that would free up a week with with minimal uh, disruption to all the other tournaments on the calendar. So you pry open another week uh, between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. You create a four-week gap instead of the current three, and in that space, uh, you you could play a Masters legitimately. Yeah, I mean. It sounds to me, and not to simplify what you said, because again, thank you for the explanation. I agree. This is, you know, these scheduling issues is why I love having you on because you really have been on top of this for so long. Um, I just, it sounds, you know, because it would require so many other changes, it sounds like it would be so difficult to happen. I guess my quick alternative on this is what if you scrapped you know, the first two events, right? Or you scrap that first weekend of grass events, you make that second weekend of Masters events, and for the players who, you know, struggle there or lose early, you have that, you know, two 250s available for them that week before Wimbledon as well to try and squeeze it in that range. Now, I'm sure Queens Club, uh, you know, Eastbourne, they would never want to sacrifice that sort of prize money. But to me, that is really, you know, outside of editing or altering a bunch of tournaments, that's the only easy fix. I could see. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's certainly in play as as a discussion point. I mean, the other thing obviously is that you know Queens and Halla, they would they would fight you know to get Masters one thousand status, and you know we all know about the uh, the Hamburg Masters battle that that Hamburg lost. So you know that would be a pretty sore spot for for German tennis. Uh, and, and tennis fans in Germany, if, you know, roughly a decade after uh, Hamburg got tossed out of the Masters rotation, if a similar thing happened to Halle, I mean, purely on merit, you know, in terms of the quality of the grass and the, and, and, uh, the, the quality of the fields, you know, Queens is a higher stature tournament than Halle, if we're being brutally honest. But, you know, the idea of Halle, which has been very successful – largely because of Federer, yes, but still it has been a very successful tournament in what is a very attractive stadium which can close its roof, you know, very quickly. Uh it's really a model for for how to uh to run a 500 uh turn point tournament. You know, to see Hala pushed aside if we ever had that, 
in a, you know, in a, in a political fight for a Masters 1000, you know, that would be very unfortunate. So that that's obviously, you know, I think as much as the schedule, uh, you know, a, a Hollow Queens um, dust up is is an equally formidable obstacle to that happening. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Obviously, that's why we haven't seen it happen yet. And again, uh, we, we got other stuff to talk about, and we're already near the hour mark. So for more on that, Grassmasters, please, or Grassmasters 1000, please, is the article, TennisAccent.com, to learn more of Matt's thoughts. That being said, uh, before we go, we, we have to talk a little London, obviously. Um now, fans of our great child podcast, our Cracked Racket, just fans of the Cracked Rackets community know that I am, I like to pride myself at least as the biggest Andy Murray fan in the business, and we can talk about that um, in a little bit as well. But actually, uh, one last final thought on um, Hollow. One player there, Matteo Berrettini, who loses in the semifinal to Gauthier. Look at his grass court season so far. He wins in Stuttgart, gets wins over, you know, Kyrgios, Kachanov, Kudla, Struff, FAA. Then he follows it up with wins here over Sepian, three Kachanov, Vili. Uh You talked in an article about him and FAA and you know we, we've talked about a lot, uh, both of those guys a lot on this podcast I'm sure we will talk about them more in the build up to Wimbledon but just uh, real quickly on Berrettini I view him as let's say you met someone who had really natural you know beautifully gifted hand-eye coordination and you just went to them and you said okay for the next 15 years you're gonna lift as many weights as possible and play tennis and we're just gonna throw you out there to blast the ball off the court that would be Matteo Berrettini. I, to me, I see so many many similarities between him and a Karen Kachanov. And you look at his season, 26 and 13, two titles on the year. I mean, this guy is so gifted, Matt. He is, and I think that in addition to the uh, package of skills uh, akin to Hatchinoff, um, you could also throw in the slice, and then that's been the one of his in- beautiful. I yeah, agree. one of his important weapons on grass. So. You know that that he he you know he offers the appearance of a player whose whose game is really coming together, um, and I think that you know at at Roland Garros you know the main reason he lost was that Casper Ruud played really well, but the other but you know it's it's not as though Berrettini was completely blame free for that loss, and it's not not like a I don't say that in a critical way, but just be, just in the sense that as you mature as a tennis player and you you carry yourself on tour you learn to uh put yourself in a position where you're peaking for the most important tournaments and while Berrettini did not play especially poorly against Rude it was also true that he wasn't able to elevate his game to a higher plane and I think that we would generally agree that Berrettini has more game than Rude and that that Berrettini's A game is better than Rude's A game uh and so it's not like it's not a stern criticism, but it's just Berrettini was not used to going through this process of playing well over several weeks and then arriving at a major and being set, you know, being fully prepared for what was going to come at him. So that was new. And so this Wimbledon is going to be so interesting because he's been able to re- go back to playing great tennis for multiple weeks. At Wimbledon, is he going to be able to meet a challenge in week one when it comes his way? I'm going to be really fascinated by how both Berrettini and Oje Aliassim, who's in a very similar boat, really fits the dynamics I've just described about Berrettini. Oje Aliassim is in a very similar position. It's going to be very interesting to see how they handle week one at Wimbledon. 
I think for both of those guys, again, you, you talk about their gameplay and such big strike first tennis. So yeah, you see the similarities across there. But for Berrettini, I think what the Goffin match exposed, the Casper Ruud matches, yeah, when he is finding that, you know, top gear, when he's hitting through the court, the way he moves forward, he closes the net like he's angry at it. Every volley he hits, such vitriol behind it. He really seems to be, you know, swinging away, trying to cut those things, put it off. But I don't think there's a plan B yet. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, because him, like Kachanov, because they're so physically gifted, so, you know, big, they can get around any court. But you can see, you know, yeah, sometimes he can, you know, banana flop the shot, get it around the corner, but he just doesn't seem as comfortable swinging off of his bat foot, you know, playing defensive tennis, buying himself time. Yes, the slice has looked good, and on grass, when you can keep the ball low, that's a sort of defense in itself, but I guess as we move forward through the clay season, I'm going to be interested to see, uh, you know, what happens when he's not playing his best tennis. Does he have a plan B he can turn to? Completely agree. That's that's so well said, and then that's just something you have to learn as you begin to breathe that thinner air of not only being more of a target for the tour as you rack up the wins, but also to carry all those miles on the odometer because you're going deep into so many tournaments and being able to come up to the next big tournament and be relatively fresh and well-situated. I mean, look at Federer, for instance. Played all that clay tennis, came to Hala, you know, didn't harm him. I mean, he wobbled, uh, but, but fundamentally he was up for a fight. He was able to, you know, overcome his tests got through some matches, not playing his best. You know, that's that familiar big three veteran example of, you know, winning without your best fastball. That's the thing that Matteo Berrettini, you know, is he's immersed in that challenge right now. Uh, That's why, you know, he is such a compelling figure on the tour. Well, that was a perfect transition because speaking of, you know, putting as many miles as possible on the odometer as we transition to London. And look, before you, for our listeners, we're recording. It is now 12.09 a.m. on the East Coast Monday morning. And, you know, Matt is on the West Coast. So I think technically mountain time is what we established last time. And, you know, he's very kind. He's like, I'll try not to keep you up too late. And I was like, no, I'm wide awake for this podcast. And I'll explain why in a little bit. And the reason why, and I promise there's a point to this uh, story, Matt. But so Sunday. Sunday mornings for me, one of my favorite because it's softball Sundays. I always get a double header in, you know, uh, I'll get two games in before 1 a.m. And today I was feeling particularly adventurous. One of my cousins uh, on my mom's side, there's a male cousin born every three years. So, of course, we all grew up playing tennis together. And the one who's directly beneath me, who's a junior in college, was home. And he's like, hey, do you want to hit this morning? I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So I hit at 1 p.m. And all that, you know, so again, softball at 9 a.m., softball 11.40, tennis from 1 to 2.30. Uh, all this my way of saying I was really f***ing tired when I got home. And so what did I do immediately? You know, my body was like, Alex, you're 23 years old now. You cannot afford to be doing that. Like, what are you trying to put us through? And immediately I pass out and take a three-hour nap. Now, the reason I bring that up is, again, I say, oh, I'm 23. Feliciano Lopez is 37 years old, and he comes this weekend, and not only does he win, you know, the singles, but he sweeps the singles and the doubles. He's forced to play double headers. You know, I think he gets two, three, third, uh, seven, six in the third matches. Matt, how the heck is he able to do all of this? Well, you know, I was really surprised that he had so much fuel left for the doubles after a long singles match against Gilles Simon, who, you know, if you play, if you if if you play two hours and forty five minutes against Jill Simone, who and I say this affectionately as a compliment, is one of the most annoying tennis players around. 
Yeah. To have not just the physical fuel, but the mental clarity <laughs> to go out and play effective doubles after going, you know, roughly 240 with Simone. I mean, that, that is pretty remarkable. Uh, in ter- you know, in terms of why Feliciano Lopez was able to do this, can we simply say that, you know, he's had a lot of downtime, that he ha- hasn't played a ton of <laughs> matches before this, so he was able to just, you know, load it all up for this one week uh, and, and, and max out. You know, and, and he, it's crazy that Lopez has not really done all that well at Wimbledon over the years, but Queens, you know, Queens, Queens really is his happy place on tour. Yeah, and you you know one of the funny things after the tournament, he says, "I'm really happy because my girlfriend all year she's seen me be horrible, and now she's gotten the chance to see me at least show I'm good at tennis." And yeah, in this tournament, you know, seven six over Ray Onich in the third, seven six over Simone in the third, uh, third sets in his matches against Fuksovic first round and FAA in the semifinals. Again, this speaks to the fact that we've talked about it. Feliciano Lopez knows exactly what he wants to do on in a, during a grass court tennis match. He's going to try and, you know, take returns early, and even if he can't get over the backhand, he's going to cut down the slice early, you know, neutralize that ball. Now, coming back out for doubles, it always helps when you're playing with Andy Murray in his return event on his, you know, home turf. Obviously, you're going to have the crowd propelling you, but just, I mean, for Feliciano, in terms of the singles at least— I just, again, it's it's the different types of opponents. Now, I'm sure the Delpo withdraw helps him from a rest standpoint, but that he's able to beat a Rayonich, who's, you know, big first serve, serve and volley, that he's beating an FAA, big power from the ground stroke, that he's beating a Simone who, you know, it's a thousand cuts as he tries to kill you. It just speaks to his level of play. And again, this point we've pointed to all pod, and it seems like the thing on grass tennis, decisiveness is the key factor. It is, and you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, Lopez. We've we've seen him use that slice so much, and I, you know, when we talk about decisiveness on a court, you know, what what really works for Lopez, and what is also instructive for Lopez to other players, is that if you are if you can develop a good knifing slice, you know, some often for offense, but also for defense, if you can develop up a really effective slice, and you know how to carve through that shot. But what, what does the slice do that other shots don't generally do as much? Buys you time. Mm-hmm. And time is, time is everything in tennis. So, you know, that, that is just such a key foundational aspect of why Lopez has been able to be, you know, so good on grass uh, for so long. And I, and I have to reiterate the larger point about Lopez. Look at, you know, he's 53 now. He he jumped up, I think, like 60 spots from, from 113. For a second, I thought you meant he's 53 years old. And I was thinking in my head, no, that can't be right. <laughs> well, boy, he, he would be, it, boy, if we're looking at 53 the way Feliciano Lopez does, we're doing okay. He'll still um, be but, handsome. Yeah, uh, the most interesting man in the world at 53. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so when you realize that he's number 53 in the rankings, Go through the AT, the back end of the ATP top 50. Go through 26 through 50 on the ATP tour, and you you tell me how many players from 26 to 50 you would rather face on grass than Feliciano Lopez. It's probably not a very long list. So that goes back to how grass, which really is not a, I mean it's we we call it grass season. It's really more like the the grass interruption or the the grass uh, double take, whatever you want to say, 
I mean, it's, it's such a it's such a here now, gone tomorrow thing on the tennis calendar. You you have so little time to prepare on it that you know it, you either have to have already be ready and confident and know exactly what you want to do, or you're or you're going to crash and burn. And so you know within that context, beating Lopez on grass is a better grass win than dozens of other top fifty uh opponents you could imagine so it, it really just grass given what it is now not what it was 45 years ago when most of the majors were on grass but grass today uh you know saying that you know you beat a certain ranking of player on grass is that is really a, a very empty calorie argument and feliciano lopez really proved that this week at queens yeah i completely agree with you and look again you've been kind enough to give me over an hour and as much respect as i have for jill simone you nailed it on the head when you said we know what we're going to know about jill simone at this point in his career there's nothing new to learn but uh my last tennis related question for you uh for this podcast at least and it comes down to london i'm going to group these guys together um stefano Tsitsipas, the number one seed in this tournament who loses in the quarterfinals to Felix Ogier-Alassim, the number eight seed who then loses in the semifinals. And then Daniil Medvedev, who is the number four seed, he loses in three sets in the semifinals to Jill Simone. Those three guys, you could argue FAA and Tsitsipas do some things similarly on grass courses. At least they want to do similar things. But all three, uh, you know, somewhat contrasting styles of grass tennis. Now, you talked about earlier for Daniil Medvedev, he shouldn't just be slugging at the baseline like you want uh you know a guy like him six six got to be moving forward at grass learn that skill I'm going to disagree with you. I love the fact that Daniil Medvedev can make a grass court match physical, reminiscent to a way a Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray would make matches at Wimbledon physical in ways that just had never been seen on a grass tennis court before. And one of my, again, sneaky things I laugh at, and maybe I'm weird, but when Medvedev, you know, decides to turn into a ball uh, during a rally, he almost gets offended when you get it back. He's like, what the hell? Like, I just turned into that one. The point's got to be over. So, yeah, I... I, I see what you're saying there is, and if he follows that balls and makes uh, points shorter, that could be great. Uh, but I would argue of these three guys, you know, the FAA probably the highest upside just because of his firepower. But I love the contrast Neil Medvedev provides six six, the way he moves his first serve. I think he's right up there with those two in terms of his potential on this surface, reminiscent to the way we've seen, you know, and not he doesn't succeed in the way I think Kevin Anderson. Uh, has success on grass, but kind of similar to a way Marin Chilich has had success on the surface. Yeah, I think you know. I think Chilich is a pretty is a pretty relevant comparison. I think that you know, in terms of the the, the making a differentiation though with Chilich, Chilich when he could really turn it on and become more really firepower. dangerous. Yeah, more firepower and specifically his return game. Yeah, I think that, that Chilich Chilich is threatening on return and he could land that first punch and, and and you know Medvedev is kind of like Zverev in the larger sense that you have this big long frame you know so on grass boy that is the surface in which to use that long frame to your advantage and you dare opponents to pass you you know to, to, to fire past your big frame you know the fact that Medvedev generally likes to hit the ball flat you know he should be Punching the ball flat into the open court where, where his opponent has to, you know, cover a lot of ground 
And, you know, generally, if he can hit if he can hit flat to the open spaces of the court, he will then get some floaters from players who are, you know, running, scrambling to cover all the areas of, of the court on defense. And he can close down points and, and have a lot of success at that. So, you know, the, I, there is kind of a Djokovician element to Medvedev in terms of, you know, his ability to reach so many balls and and uh, you know make the make the court look so much smaller but you know and it's not as though that approach is completely misguided because to a certain extent it does play into medvedev's strengths but you can't say well i'm going to play the way novak djokovic plays tennis and you know because you're not as good as djokovic i mean that's you can, we, you so can that's style it. you can style your game the same way but you can't rely on having the same results from following the exact same blueprint. You're going to have to find unique solutions on your own that are particular to you and the opponent that you're playing. Well, I think here's the thing he has that Djokovic does with the serve, right? Right off the bat. The fact that he can open up ridiculous slice angles for himself with that deuce slice out wide serve. The fact that he's fine, you know, playing the slice out wide and then hitting a first backhand. He loves that for his go-to pattern. Again, you talked about his range. I think the fact, you know, he can do the same thing on the ad side. So that's how he can win himself some easier free points. But the other thing, you mentioned his flat ball. It's reminiscent of the way, you know, I think FAA probably hits through of the Tsitsipas Medvedev FAA trio probably hits through a grass court the best just because of sheer firepower. But the way Medvedev keeps the ball low, flat, drives through the court, it reminds me of Dennis Kudla in that sort of way, that they can both change directions at ease. And I just think he has all of the skills. And look, with the game becoming more physical, yes, we've seen a resurgence, guys like Tsitsipas FAA moving forward and, uh, you know, Dennis Shapovalov, that they have those explosive games kind of bodes well for the future that you know the net the net game isn't dying but I just think that contrast to everyone else on tour it's it's it will not only allow Medvedev to stand out from a you know viewer perspective but I just think that style will bear well three out of five sets we've seen physically how he's able to hold up look last two years second round third round of Wimbledon I'm pretty sure he beat Chorich first round there last year I think Daniil Medvedev is going to have a ton of success at Wimbledon over his career maybe i i, I want to throw out this cautionary note as well um and and if you remember this wasn't wimbledon but it was london the atp finals championship match last november that was a match in which alexander zverev just planted himself on the baseline and you know he he he, he engaged novak djokovic in middle third backhands basically some some forehands but mostly trading backhands in the middle third of the court and, and Zverev just said, I'm going to stand here and hit these backhands all day. And you, Novak Djokovic, with your world-class two-hand backhand, I'm going to outlast you. I mean, that was the declaration that Zverev made. And so I use that because that seemed to be not necessarily the, from the backhand wing, but Medvedev had the similar mentality against Djokovic in Australia. And... You know, you might be able to do that really, really well for two and a half or even three full sets. But is that a mentality that you want to sustain? A mentality specifically where you rest on the ability to outlast and to to win with your stamina and your fitness and your athleticism. You know, it's not again, I don't want to say it's completely misguided because it does play into the strengths of the player. But there are sometimes larger considerations. And I think that, 
you know, we, we, when we look at Zverev in terms of, you know, how inefficient he is and how that catches up with him at important tournaments, you know, Medvedev, he hasn't really made a lot of deep runs at majors. So this really isn't yet a concern for him. But when he does get to a major quarterfinal, when he does get uh, it into the second week, I'm going to be very interested to see how much fuel he does have in the tank. And, you know, maybe his approach, you know, which relies on his ability to outlast is going to give him great success and is going to make him the beast of the ATP tour in three to four years. It could very well work out to be that way. But I think Zverev has already emerged as something of a cautionary tale in terms of trying to play that way. See, this is why we have to do these episodes more often, because, again, we I I. I like I love your point. I love that perspective. I completely agree with you in terms of building habits. You're right. Daniil Medvedev does not, in his moments that he's at the net, look like an incapable volleyer. And I think you said this in an article, or maybe it was a tweet you fired off. He's just an unwilling volleyer at this point. So yes, building that habit uh, certainly beneficial for him in the long term. But look, we have uh, you know we've talked about so much tennis this weekend. We did have. Uh, I wanted to talk about an article you wrote, the surprisingly simple truth about wild cards, but here's how we do a tease, listeners. We're going to cover that on our next podcast, uh, if you are so willing to come back. I do want to ask you uh, any final thoughts on London and then any uh, thoughts on Wimbledon qualifying this week before we wrap up? Uh, I, don't have a, I don't have a huge thought on Wimbledon qualifying. I think that, you know, in terms of uh, Queen's Club, just the Sitsipas, the Sitsipas Auger Aliasim rivalry. Is going is it, it seems to be the, the rivalry that's going to be the most compelling drama in men's tennis in the 2020s. I mean, and I think what makes it so special is that it's you know it's not a Federer and Nadal deal where you know you have one guy five years older, you know four and a half years older than than the other, and one guy you know set the pace, and then the other guy was built to beat him. It's not really quite in that vein. You know, these are more contemporaries of each other. Uh, you know, not you know they're not uh, one year apart the way Nadal and Djokovic are, but you know it's it's uh, two two and a half, roughly two two and a half years apart. And so you know uh, the Sitsipas's challenge in terms of feeling comfortable enough uh, against Oje Aliassim, uh, you know that that has already emerged as a a plot point. In the rivalry, I mean, they they've played just twice on the main tour. They played a few times as juniors, but it's so obvious that Felix it, it plays with a totally unburdened, uncluttered mind against Sitsipas, and that Sitsipas, on the other hand, you know, feels the tension of trying to solve this puzzle that he hasn't yet been able to figure out. And it's just going to be great to see the back and forth of this uh, chess match. Uh, in the 2020. So that that's that's one of the big events that Queens Club gave us. Yeah, look, I would argue the fact that the Murray Djokovic rivalry doesn't get enough love, but the fact that these guys were those guys were born a week apart, the fact that I would argue the 2012 semifinal they played at the Australian Open best match I've ever watched uh just in terms of the physicality of it. 
didn't get enough love, but I love your point there. Uh, CT Pass FAA, a rivalry for us to build on for the future. I also love the rivalry of Alex Virev versus the world. This is the kid who's, you know, he was dubbed the next one. The talent is so obvious when you watch him play. He just hits the ball from the baseline differently. And, you know, the ball sounds different coming off of his racket. The movement at his size looks different than anyone else you've seen before. So I think both stages of the game, you know, we talked about Kenan, Barty, Osaka, all of these people. There is so much young talent in the pipelines, and that's why I think it's such an exciting time to be a tennis fan. But before we wrap up, Matt, I want to give you another chance. You did this at the beginning as well, but we really are so thankful of uh, for you coming on to this podcast. I obviously always appreciate your work, you know, three, four, five articles sometimes a day at TennisAccent.com. Tell our listeners where they can find your stuff, where to follow you on social media, what they should be looking for this week. Sure. So TennisAccent.com on the web on Twitter, accent underscore tennis, uh, Sakib Ali, the, the master podcaster. Uh, he's at S A Q I B A. Uh, if you want to, you want to inquire to him about, uh, you know, what's coming up for he, that he has lined up on the podcast. You can ask him. Uh, also he has, uh, our GoFundMe for tennis with an accent on his Twitter page. Um, and then I am at M Zemek M Z E M as in Michael E K. And uh, this is our lineup for Wimbledon. Um, we're going to have an article about Wimbledon seeds and how Wimbledon could do the seeding process differently. That's from Jane Voigt, whom you can follow at down the T-E-E, down the T. Um, and then I am going to be doing a long series, long not in terms of the length of individual articles, but like I'm going to have like 12, 13, 14 short pieces on how screwed up tennis scheduling has always been in the open era. So it's not just today. It it was at the beginning of the open era in 1968, carried through the 1970s and and into the mid-1980s. It's a series called Tennis Tumult, and you will be able to see the various installments come out during the week. And then um, our uh, consultant and sometimes podcast guest, Andrew Burton, whom you can follow at Burton Ad, Burton A-D, he's going to do one of his chart and graphics series on the the hashtag that he has coined and made his own ATP lost boys, you know, how that generation, which he calls generation Grigor, uh, which is, uh, you know, age 25 to 29, uh, born from 1989 through 1993 has fallen so far below other five year cohorts of ATP tennis players. So he's going to have that at some point, uh, later in the week. So we have a lot of really good stuff for you coming at tennisaccent.com. And again, our podcast, which we encourage you to subscribe, rate and review, subscribe. If you have an iPhone, subscribe on Apple podcasts. We're there. If you have an Android phone, you know, subscribe on Stitcher. We're there. We are at uh, red circle, redcircle.com and also radio public radiopublic.com and we're working on other outlets uh, especially google podcasts where we will let you know on twitter uh, when we get to those other outlets all i hear there is it sounds like we have a perfect another excuse to bring you back on the podcast i am always available We appreciate that. The other people we always appreciate here on this podcast are super producers, Max Flingner and Daniel Westoff, who really do have an editing job to do, as always. If, you know, you're 
you're looking for your tennis content, obviously tennisaccent.com, but also check out our website, crackedrackets.com. You know the deal by now. Like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Great Shot podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, What the Deuce. We appreciate any interaction we can get with your listeners. And again, if you guys have questions for me, you have questions for Matt, you want to hear us talk about certain topics, let us know because we would love uh, to open up a mailbag portion of this podcast. And obviously with Wimbledon right around the corner, there are a ton of questions to be had about the tennis world. We're all wondering who's going to take home the year's third Grand Slam on the men's and women's side, and we are looking forward to getting all of those questions answered in the next couple of weeks. But Matt, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Obviously, I've mentioned it before, but I'm such a fan of your work, and maybe we're going to have to make this a weekly thing because it, it feels like we could talk about tennis for an hour on any night. Uh, we certainly could, Alex, and, and you're a real mensch for having me back on. I appreciate it. <laughs> of course, you know, uh, always a pleasure for me. But uh, again, for my wonderful co-host, Matt Zemek, who again, TennisAccent.com for all of his great content. For our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire team at Cracked Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Matt, I forgot to remind you about this in the intro, but I'm hoping you remember. Do you remember what we tell our listeners? That's the mini break. Oh, I love it. And we will see you all next week. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you.